1: W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Life during the pandemic and election year may have you depending upon news more than ever before. Access to news 24-7 is something we take for granted Though tonight, we'll look back to the lead-up and birth of 24-Hour News. There's a Gershwin song that goes, They all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. The lyrics continue with other seemingly impossible things in their own time, like Edison recording sound... All of the examples lead up to the refrain, Who's got the last laugh now? Elite news executives and journalists in New York thought Ted Turner was laughable when he began a network that had a radical impact on news and our lives. How did the man who described the news as just one big rerun of bad stuff, become the founder of a 24-hour cable news network? The answer is chronicled in the new book, Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News, by Lisa Napoli. The author joins us now from Los Angeles. Lisa, welcome
0: back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I keep writing books so I can join you again. So thanks. Love it.
1: (laughs) CNN celebrated its 40th anniversary. Did you write this book to commemorate that milestone?
0: Yes. Yes. Lois, last time I talked to you about Ray Kroc and the making of McDonald's. And after that book came out, a friend of mine from my era at CNN, which was a very short one, called and said, you know what? The CNN 40th anniversary is coming up and someone needs to write the book about the founding of it. And that's that's how it came about. And that's why it it just dropped a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. Now, Chapter one
1: is set in 1949. Why do you begin with the story of the little girl in the well?
0: Well, you know, I started the book at the start of television news, really the start of commercial television, actually. And what I wanted to show was, first of all, what kind of world we were in before TV was omnipresent. Uh, it wasn't yet then in 1949. It was it was rare for a home to have a house. And if, if one did, people migrated to it from the neighborhood. Uh, but I wanted to show this, this uh, tragic incident of a little girl falling into a well also, because uh, in 1987, One of the first major events that put CNN on the public map, so to speak, was a little girl falling into a well. And it's basically showing everything old is new again. Um, You know, a a human interest story is a human interest story. What had changed in those years, those nearly 40 years, was the technology and, and of course, this uh, this vessel that came to be CNN.
1: Yeah, there's certainly a symmetry to The chapters you chronicle, Lisa, no one had ever broadcast live from the scene of a developing story before 1949. And you write that it was the emotional impact of that story that made it compelling television. You include a wealth of historic details about the technology that eventually led to cable news. Please tell us a bit about Klaus Landsberg.
0: He was a formidable character. Uh, He—he's the subject of a book himself. Um, He's—he's—he actually was sort of like a precursor to Ted Turner in his day, uh, although he escaped Nazi Germany, came to the United States, and landed in in Los Angeles, where he had this wonderful toy in front of him, which was making one of the very first television stations. And he was just an inveterate experimenter, engineer. Uh, Tinkerer, and more than anything else, he saw the immense power of bringing pictures into live into a home, which is hard for us to imagine, was was really like a rocket ship back then. And so Klaus saw, as he was building this television station KTLA in Los Angeles, that uh, there was this need to pump out good stuff on on the on the tube but he also hadn't quite figured out news not most people hadn't at that point TV was so new and this day that this little girl fell into a well in uh, a, an outlying suburb of Los Angeles just piqued him uh, he realized everybody would relate to the story of a missing child and as the rescue operation got built up and it was quite dramatic in itself he he recognized that perhaps it was something that he could televise and of course that sounds very quaint, and you know, now you could pick up your iPhone and televise from wherever you are in an instant. But to do that in 1949 was no small feat, and it wasn't like people were equipped to take cameras out of studios and go live from the scene. But nonetheless, he engineered it. What I love about that story, even though it has a tragic ending, is that it shows uh, the, the conflict from a very early date about what is news is it news that a little child goes missing in her backyard? Uh, Do you think that's news in uh, Czechoslovakia or Cincinnati? Well, it turned out that people all around the world did want to know about this. They couldn't see it, of course, because television was so rudimentary, but it really sets the stage for the conversation that I want to have with this book, which is uh, what news is uh, when it should and shouldn't be transmitted, Uh, is there an off switch, should there be an off switch, and all of those things coalesced so magnificently in the 70s right there in Atlanta as Ted Turner was doing his thing with WTCG, Channel 17, and then later CNN.
1: Yeah. Would you explain what you refer to as the lunatic fringe?
0: (laughs) So Ted Turner, unlike Klaus Landsberg, uh, was not a TV technician, was not an engineer. uh, And and he was a billboard magnet who got into radio and then got into television. And that's a long story in itself. But the way he got into television was buying a station, WJRJ, there in Atlanta that was on the UHF band of television. Uh, UHF was what they called, people in the industry called the lunatic fringe, because only somebody who was a lunatic would spend their hard-earned money on this station that virtually no one could see. And, uh, you know, still it was dazzling because it was television. And by the late 60s, television was a dazzling force, but it was also an impenetrable force because the networks owned television. And a guy like Ted Turner, it took a guy like Ted Turner to say, I will spend my money on this station, although we didn't really spend a lot. It was a stock transfer that got him into the uh, Channel 17. And um, we'll see what happens. And quickly that became a Petri dish of innovation for him in television. And, And it parallels magnificently the uh, many, many, many technological changes and societal changes that happened in the 70s that opened up television. But the lunatic fringe, back to your question, was really, UHF, if you had rabbit ears on your television, and and if anybody out there remembers when you had to turn a dial to actually tune in a station, you know, get up off the couch, and in those days, uh, Atlanta only had three other stations. Well, they had a couple of other indies, but they faltered. And there wasn't much choice in television at that time. And so even the lunatic fringe that didn't necessarily have a lot um, of content on it, to use a more modern word, uh, was, was still dazzling because it meant that there was something else that you might be able to look at. The young Ted
1: Turner identified with Alexander the Great and later likened himself to Christopher Columbus. (laughs) Would you talk about the grandiose statements and behavior
0: associated with Turner? Wow. You know, today, Ted Turner would have been run out of town in about 30 seconds. But then at a different moment in time, he was this swashbuckling, uh, dashing womanizing yachtsman uh, award-winning yachtsman he was he was serious and good uh, and and just risk taker he really Lois embodies entrepreneur you know in business school I don't have an MBA but somebody out there who does knows that you know you talk about somebody who who is fearless and believes that they are changing the world and that was Ted Turner uh, even before he started to change the world he just had this sense of um, certainty and 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 fearlessness that allowed him to buy this little junky television station and experiment with it to the point where it became something big you know I keep saying about Ted Turner, Who's in advanced stage um, and has a form of dementia? He's one of those people. When you look at his life at this moment in time that I write about in the book, and you say, "That's how I want to say I've lived when I get older." Maybe not the specifics of how he lived, but he—he he just no stone unturned uh, and no fear. Mm. You write about how
1: masterful. Ted could be at creating the illusion of success. In what
0: ways did that serve him well? Well, even before he had money, people uh, saw him as, you know, he, he started out of the gate with money, but he didn't have the, the vast fortune that was necessary to do a lot of the things he did before, before uh Time elapsed, but he also would not take no for an answer. If you said, "I will not buy time on that lunatic fringe television station of yours because nobody else, nobody's watching it," uh, he would jump up on the desk and insist that you know somebody pay attention to him. So, you, same thing with the Braves. When the Braves were a terrible team in the cellar, uh, you know, after he bought them, he he of course used the Braves to orchestrate Channel Seven. Team to greater heights, but then he bought the team, and as the owner, he would go to the st- the, the team uh, every day or when he was in town, not yachting, and uh, just vociferously champion their success as if they were the greatest team in the world, even though they absolutely were not. So it was that starry-eyed, rose-colored uh, kind of championing that that uh, ser- served him well. Everybody around him believed it, too. You know, you, you talk to people who worked with him in those early days. And even though he was a little crazy, uh, it's kind of amazing that people there were all on his team and, and, and rallying with him, too.
1: You say that Ted plunged into this new business of television with, I'm quoting you, his characteristic manic. Zeal. How did he spin Channel 17's location on the dial? Well, he
0: basically told people that, um, told prospective advertisers that, yes, people couldn't tune in Channel 17, but that the people who could tune in in Channel 17 were smarter than other people because, uh, you know, it required a certain sort of intelligence to be able to figure out how to tune in this this (laughs) station on the dial. And not many people bit, but, you know, you have to give him credit for... (laughs) For, for turning what was a huge liability, or trying to, into an asset. And that, that again, embodies you know, his, his, I'm not going to take no for an answer, even though he often had to.
1: And the ultimate salesmanship. Yes, yes. Reese Schoenfeld was the person who became the first president of CNN long before that. What was his insight into what you call the triopoly of ABC, CBS,
0: and NBC? So, Ree Schoenfeld was one of a number of men who, in the in the fifties and sixties, as they saw the networks dominate, you know, grow and grow and and get richer and richer and hold the mind share of the American public more and more, both with entertainment and with their stranglehold on news. He was distressed by that, uh, the way we would be distressed today with any sort of my, monopoly or duopoly. But of course, fighting that kind of monopoly or duopoly or triopoly was very difficult. And Reese had incredible intentions, but he didn't have money. So he, as the career newsman who started in the movie tone news, in in the, the newsreels, uh, that's where he got his his start. Uh, that That's where news footage got its start, uh, basically was dismayed that, that there was no way to set up an alternative. And up until the moment when Ted Turner decided that he was going to do this with CNN, uh, Reese was crusading and finding ways and places that he might uh, bust into that network stranglehold with news. He also was upset that the networks, um, while they dominated entertainment, really news for them was a fringe uh, in itself you know it was one of those eat your vegetables we have to do news um, but they didn't in his estimation have the commitment to news of course some people listening to this may remember the time when news was at six thirty at night dinner time you'd sit down there was local news too and up until uh the uh, the 60s, it was very short. Um, There might be specials and documentaries, but those were few and far between, and those were not the dominant play for the networks. And Reese felt that news deserved its due, that news should be front and center. But what wasn't possible then. Besides the money, was the technology shooting news? Was in Reese's early career all about shooting film, um, and and processing film. And again, for somebody listening to this who might be young enough, or too young to remember that that that's how media got made. Uh, That was a laborious process. Imagine going out and shooting a story on film, breaking news, and then rushing it back to a studio and processing it. And that's how it used to go. So Reese dreamed of a day like the day he took over at CNN as Ted's chief person in charge of the news. Because as you pointed out before, Ted was not the news guy. He was the innovator, the money guy, the guy willing to take the risk, able to take the risk. Reese was the guy who had news running through his veins. Mm. Lisa, my
1: eyes widened when I read the part where you cite the futurist Arthur C. Clarke, What did he write
0: as early as 1945? Well, that's the other interesting part of this story. And every time I thought I'd gone back far enough in time, I had to keep going back again, which was why this is such a joy to research. Arthur C. Clarke basically posited this concept of satellites before they were invented. And his, uh, I'm not smart enough to articulate his his plan, although I hope I do a decent job of it in the book, but he saw a world that could be interconnected by something floating in the sky that transmitted signals. And basically, that's what happened. I write about Telstar, which uh, was the first satellite, communication satellite, that allowed the transmission of TV pictures transcontinentally. And, and the magic that that was for anybody who witnessed that display, uh, as rudimentary as it was at the time, the idea that you could see a real-time picture from here to there was magnificent. It was it was nothing more than nothing less than revolutionary, and so Arthur C. Clarke, you know, imagined that future before it actually happened, and it was that future. And and again, Atlanta is the epicenter of it with the Scientific Atlanta uh, organization that made committed to making the dishes that could make that kind of receiver possible. Um, it's really quite a startling thing to imagine life before satellites now that I'm sitting here in front of my home computer talking to you over Wi-Fi, which uh, was something no one could have imagined back at that time. And uh, you
1: emphasize the crucial role of Atlanta in this story, not just as Turner's hometown and the eventual headquarters of CNN, but because of Scientific Atlanta, because of that company.
0: Yes, yes. Because um, you had some a, a Georgia Tech incubated uh, company that a man named Sid Topal came to run from Boston. He was a career engineer who had this vision, who saw the future. That's what I love. You know, this is a story of various people who saw the future from their particular perches and they came together and uh you know they were naturally going to be drawn together because of their respective interests that all together created this television revolution and really it was sparked out of cnn partially because of the technology partially because of ted's wild you know grand vision, uh, partially because he'd bought this television station that was left for dead on West Peachtree Street. Uh, so yes, Scientific Atlanta factored into that uh, revolution by making satellite dishes that enabled a signal to be pulled down from the skies.
1: Author Lisa Napoli, her latest book is about Ted Turner and the birth of CNN. We'll hear more after a short break. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the author Lisa Napoli. Her latest book is called Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News. Ted was an insomniac and couldn't understand why TV stations signed
0: off at night. Mm -hmm. What was his solution? What was such a simple and obvious solution, it was kind of amazing that nobody had done it before, but it sort of speaks to... Our always-on culture. Some of us remember when stores were closed on Sunday, and you know, closed at, at a certain dinner hour or something. And and basically, that's what television used to do too. It went off after the late-night movie, uh, not to come on again until the morning. And uh, that seemed ludicrous to Ted. You know, that was lost revenue and also lost uh, viewing. Viewing time. uh, Revenue is more important, but he was an insomniac and he didn't understand why he couldn't flip on the TV in the middle of the night. And that very simple, non-technological innovation of keeping a television station on all night, which again, for anybody young out there will say, oh, that's so silly. That's so obvious. Well, it wasn't obvious in the 60s or early 70s. uh, And when Ted did it, he did it and uh, changed the world. Would you talk about the
1: programming strategy at Channel 70?
0: Well, and that's back to your, you know, discussing lunatic fringe. One of the reasons the lunatic fringe was lunatic was because it wasn't attached to a network. It had a scramble for TV programming. uh, And it wasn't a time when we could make videos or films easily on our phones. Uh, Buying programming was no easy feat. It was a very complex system and there wasn't much to buy. And so buying old films or licensing sports was something that was previously the domain of the networks. And now all of a sudden Ted came in and started buying up, content, again, I hate that word, but that's a modern word. Um, he started buying up old films that had been sort of in an old dusty vault, an old off-network television shows, and he stole the Braves from WSB, uh, and, and on and on to, to fill the time on this television channel. But the most innovative thing that happened was because of his crew, and his crew uh, basically to fulfill FCC requirements that they do some sort of modification of news, uh, basically started ripping and reading from the wires or from the front page of the newspaper with their young, handsome announcer, Bill Tush. And uh, that grew into a jokestery newscast that uh, they put on in the dark of night because they figured nobody else would want to watch it except an in insomniac. And that innovation in programming uh, was was one of Ted's first innovations in programming that really put him on the map as his station expanded outside of the region. So
1: it's easy to understand. Why Ted's acquisition of the Braves became the oxygen of Channel 17, and then he eventually acquired the Hawks, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. who were also a losing team. It's understandable from Turner's point of view, but why would national viewers want to watch Channel 17? I mean, you've got these two losing teams and a buffoonery presentation of news. Well, and also add to that wrestling. Oh, I
0: forgot the wrestling. Live. Don't forget the wrestling. But but that to your point, what what Ted was able to do regionally first was to pump out that melange, to the southeast, uh, to smaller towns that were getting cable, that had cable before cable was a huge industry, uh, and was more of a utility. So little imagine being in a little town in Alabama, and you have maybe, the, maybe two networks, if you're lucky, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have this cable that enables you to get those two networks. And this station floats in off your receiver box from Atlanta, the big city nearby. And not only does it float in with old movies and old network stuff, but it has live baseball and you don't have to drive to Atlanta to go see the live baseball once a year with your family anymore, because you can sit there in your living room and watch it and the wrestling and so on. So at first Ted floated the signal around the Southeast uh, and and then uh, because of the satellite was able to float the signal around the nation and people in the know thought that that was preposterous, but it turns out that if you had only two or three options available to you and you 're clicking through and you see a fourth, well, you want to watch it and if you get the sense that it 's live or it 's different than the stuff you 're seeing on the main conventional networks well that attracts you to it even more, even if it is absurd. It's such a hard thing for us to imagine today because we can watch anything we want, anywhere we are, anytime we want. And yet not that long ago, that was impossible. It's like trying to imagine what it was like before you could get in a car or on a train, or a plane, and go somewhere. It was a different universe. And it was also around
1: this time, around the year 1976, that Ted Turner's outrageous behavior seemed to increase. He earned the nickname he hated, the Mouth of the South, Mm -hmm. and... As late as 1976, only three years later we'd have CNN, but just three years before that, Ted said, no news is good news. I hate the news. I'll never do news. I don't believe in news. What changed his mind?
0: Well, he still wasn't necessarily a believer in news. And that's the other reason, Lois, that I wanted to write this book. Because today, CNN is one of the most polarizing three letters you could possibly say uh, anywhere. And uh, back then, it was not what it has become. And Ted Turner did not start this channel because of some grand conspiracy to change the world as far as uh, its political persuasion. He was a conservative guy who had an idea about using this technology. And the vehicle by which he decided to use this technology was news because he didn't have to license the content from a movie studio or a television station or a sports channel. Um, he had sports on his his channel seventeen and he didn't want to co-opt that. So that news seemed to be the only thing left to 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 use as a proof of concept, if you will, about this idea of, pumping up a television signal to the sky and showering it down across the united states so it was not informed by any desire he was not married to Jane Fonda. It was long before Jane Fonda came along. It was not some vast left-wing conspiracy, not at all. It was purely a proof of technology. And truthfully, if it had been the former and not the latter, I might've been able to sell this book for a whole lot more <laughs> money. <laughs> but, but instead, I've had you know people who were in their 30s and 40s say to me, oh, well, this is you know, this is old stuff. What The real current conversation isn't about what you're talking about. And I say, well, read the book first. I think you'll see why it's relevant
1: uh, now. He said that with the news channel, he could save the world. At this point, you also describe what appears to be an escalation in his bizarre behavior. And Lisa, I have to commend you for not psychoanalyzing him, but taking a very serious journalist's approach to this story. I remember reading after he married Jane Fonda that Ted's behavior improved because he was on lithium for manic disorder. And one of the reasons they bonded <laughs> only one of them but perhaps significant each had a parent who committed suicide you don't you don't dwell on any of the personal stuff or armchair psychoanalysis
0: you could have Yes. And again, maybe a book about Ted and Jane Fonda, as opposed to his second wife, Jane, uh, mother of three of his children, might have been more salacious. I belong to a group of biographers and I've learned from them from reading, you're not supposed to psychoanalyze. For me, telling it like it was with Ted uh, from extensive research uh, of newspaper articles. Of course, everything is fallible. Everything's a representation of reality. But in in deep, deep research that I did for this book, watching hours of videos of Ted Turner, um, reading books and, and as I say, articles after article, talking to people who'd interviewed him back then, uh, I hope I paint the portrait of the Ted that existed at that moment in time without stepping back and saying, here's what might have been happening. Yes, I lay out that he inherited his business from his father, who did commit suicide, um, who was a larger-than-life figure, as, of course, most fathers are for all of us, but... um, You know, I am very proud of this book because in the course of writing it, a number of the people who were there at the beginning of CNN, and there were about 300 people there, and of course I did not, I could not talk to every single one of them, um, said to me, you know, oh, there were sex and drugs and Ted was crazy and you should have seen what went on in the halls of Channel 17. I think I uh, explained that and hinted that without dwelling on it all in the service of explaining this incredible, important moment in time, not just in Atlanta's history, but in media history that changed all of our lives. And that was my intent. And it's very important to point out that CNN had nothing to do with me or this book. Uh, This is an independent work of research. But I did not intend to go do what we call in biography world, the cradle to grave of CNN. I wasn't trying to do the beginning to the very end, a person's entire life cycle or or an entity's life cycle. I wanted to show this slice of time uh, because no one had ever really written about it before. That origin story of Atlanta and the media world and Ted Turner and Rhys Schoenfeld and a number of key players In the 70s, as the world was changing then because of technologies.
1: Thanks for listening to City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis. My guest today is Lisa Napoli. Her latest book is Up All Night Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24 Hour News. Ted had a sense of the world outside Manhattan, and that distinguished him from other media executives. You know, they make, they, meaning New York, Washington, laughed at the notion of the world beyond those realms for news. He
0: proved them
1: entirely wrong.
0: Yes. Yes. And again, today, if something starts up in a small town or in a non-quote-unquote major media city, which Atlanta, of course, has become, uh, but today, you know, if a kid out of his basement or someplace in some remote area creates a revolution nobody's really surprised but then the idea of doing that was incredible and 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 unbelievable to the media establishment and i felt like that was an important story to tell too you know we talk a lot about diversity and equity and inclusion now, thank goodness. But back then, uh, CNN was doing that, maybe not in the way that it looks today, but they were hiring young people out of school, hiring African-American anchor women. Okay, yes, they were hiring them because they were cheaper, but a lot of, all the people they were hiring was because they were cheaper. They they stole an African-American anchor from the networks, Bernard Shaw, who went on to become the front piece of the network for for a long time, um, an incredibly respected journalist. It wasn't all courage. Part of it was skirting union rules to locate in Atlanta as opposed to in a classic media center. They were able to do things differently that they couldn't have done had they been hidebound by... Uh, union rules up in New York. And of course, that was what had kept other people from starting a a 24 hour news network at that point, um, because the money, the the finances just couldn't work. So it all really was a perfect storm at a moment in time that will never ever come again. And I think that's why I love writing and reading history. Well, (laughs) it was such a
1: an extraordinary moment, and for all of his mm, frugality, dare I say, unbelievably cheap that he was, Ted understood that he needed top-name talent for CNN to be taken seriously. Did he really say, who's Dan, rather?
0: That's what I was told. (laughs) That's how much he didn't follow the news. He knew Walter Cronkite because he was a yachtsman, um, but he had a selective sort of knowledge. You know, he knew everything there was to know about boats, Uh, but he was just not a news consumer.
1: Yeah, and yet he was willing to bring on Daniel Shore.
0: Well, but he didn't even know who Daniel Shore was. (laughs) Daniel Shore uh, writes in in one of his memoirs that he was positive that that Ted Turner had no idea who he was, uh, that that. Ted Turner was told that he was an important person. He was the most prominent talent who they could hire. And basically, even Daniel Shore said this, may he rest in peace, that he was he was between gigs, he would not have considered going to this crazy wild operation run by a crazy wild man if he wasn't out of work at the time or, you know, just cobbling it together as a freelancer. But yeah, Daniel Shore had this storied past with CBS had basically been run out of the network, um, and long before he became a, a you know, well-known presence on NPR uh, had worked a little bit for an outfit that Reese had worked at called Television News, really, co- like I say, cobbling it together. And it was not clear at all that Ted Turner had any idea the controversy around him. Um, And certainly they went on, at one point, Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show. And uh, it's, it's actually fabulous to listen to it, to watch it, because you couldn't have two men who were more different sitting next to each other. This, you know intellectual Eastern Jewish man who was so representative of the media establishment, even though he was angry with it at the time, sitting next to the southern conservative man, uh, yachtsman, uh, crazy baseball owner, um, and all of a sudden they needed each other and there they were in business together. And I love the story that I tell in the book, I won't tell it here, about how they first meet Um, and sign on with one another. It was totally a marriage of necessity, as Daniel Shore called it.
1: Hmm. Please tell us about CNN's first broadcast.
0: Well, uh, it took place at 10th and Techwood. Uh, at a campus that has expanded greatly and was a left for dead country club that had been retrofitted in under a year so that it could be ready for June 1st 1980 and there was a gala party on the front lawn by the fountain and that had not very long before been infested with the bodies of dead rats, because that's how left for dead that country club had been. And basically, uh, the gala occurred outside and inside a bunch of people were running around uh, maniacally hoping that they could get it together to go on the air at 6pm. And they did. Uh, They had no choice, of course. The show always goes on or should go on. Doesn't doesn't always, it's true. But they they flipped the switch and all of a sudden they were off to the races and it was absolutely devoid of fanfare. It was what we would call in the web business a soft launch. on on went uh, Dave Walker and Lois Hart, the first anchors, a married team, uh, who'd come from elsewhere to Atlanta to work for the channel. Took a risk, and basically there was news, and the news didn't stop till today. Uh, but it was nothing grand, and it really did just look like a newscast of any other, except that it did have the flourish of of photographs, video of the satellites in the backyard, which uh, really were the rocket fuel, if you will, that that allowed CNN to even be imagined.
1: Not long after that, about a year later, uh, Bernard Shaw demonstrated the ultimate importance of accuracy in reporting rather than being the first. Please tell us about the coverage of the shootings that took place in
0: March of 1981. So it's really important to remember that even at launch, CNN had fewer than 2 million subscribers and only 18 million homes in the nation had cable, so not many people could see it uh the, the, the nation wasn't wired yet. Uh, and even a year in, it wasn't that much greater. The audience wasn't that much greater. And and, and CNN was still fighting in DC, especially against the media establishment uh, for, for respect. And on that day that President Reagan was on this other side of an assassin's bullet. Actually, it wasn't even clear at that moment if he had been shot. Uh, CNN, of course, had covered the speech that the president had just given before he exited the hotel where he was uh, at the the other end of this gunfire. And uh, other networks were out there, uh, the pool networks, photographing this terrible instance as people fell to the ground and mayhem struck. And CNN, uh, it rang across the wires and CNN was on the air. The networks were not at that point, uh, of course they wouldn't be. Um, They were in soap operas, their usual mainstay afternoon programming. And Bernard Shaw was on the air and very calmly explained what had happened. Now, why that was important was it was one of the very, besides the fact that a president, you know, was in this terrible situation and that was cataclysmic in so many levels. uh, But why it was important from a media history point of view is that A, they went on the air, uh, and they allowed the news to unfold as it was happening. Again, seems pretty retro right now because we're living that every single day, but in 1981, it was still not common for us to turn on a television and see a news event unfold like a sporting event in front of our very eyes. And that's what all of a sudden happened. The other networks went on hastily uh, and everybody was scrambling to report what had happened. Had he been shot? Had he not been shot? Who had been shot? Who did the shooting? No one knew. And up until that point, Uh, What was happening was you would wait till the news occurred in the evening and hear the summary. Maybe there would be an interruption where an anchor said that a big event had occurred. But never did you see an event of that magnitude unfold in the way that you did then. And Bernard Shaw did something that his colleagues at the other networks didn't do, which was be very cautious about revealing in particular the information about press secretary James Brady, who had been shot. Uh, The networks reported that he had died. That was not true. And Bernard Shaw was very, very careful about that. And that day was the day it didn't erase the animosity of the networks towards cnn but it was a day that the networks began to see not just the power of 24-hour news of always on news but that cnn wasn't just populated by a bunch of chicken noodle newsers that there there was at its you know one of its helms Bernard Shaw, a completely respected newsman who was sober and somber about not rushing to air with information. Now, of course, today all bets are off and all kinds of things are said that aren't necessarily true. Uh, But at that moment in time, there was still this uh, belief about you know, objectivity and uh, and factual accuracy that prevailed. And yeah, I love the story of that day, as difficult as it was to watch that video numerous times. And it does, Lois, just to go on for one more second, hearken to 1963 when President Kennedy was shot. Another time, the only other time that television unfolded In that way,
1: Lisa, the chapter titled Duck Hunting with Fidel may be my favorite. (laughs) How did the unlikely coupling of Fidel Castro and Ted Turner come about?
0: Television.
1: (laughs) But what did they share?
0: What did they share? Well, besides a love of beautiful women and duck hunting, (laughs) uh, what they shared was this uh, recognition that what Ted had started was something more than just a technological marvel. And basically, what happened was that Fidel Castro down in Cuba was pirating the signal of CNN. And he was very curious about this place, this CNN, and this, this uh, person behind it. And so he issued an invitation to Ted to come visit. And Ted just couldn't believe it. Ted at that point was mouth of the South, wild man. And people in the networks were still mystified by this man behind this this network. And he went to see Fidel and was a private visitor of Fidel's, and yeah, I don't want to give away the whole story, but I do want to say that that was a pivotal moment in, it, you know, it, the details are pretty salacious and fabulous, but but the overarching uh, takeaway from that visit was that Fidel Castro made Ted Turner believe, Ted Turner, who a conservative who despised communism and everything that Fidel stood for. He made Ted believe that there was a power in this television news thing that could be positive and could be a force for change and that he, it's almost like that network movie moment in the movie Network, where Howard Beale recognizes that he has the power as the anchorman at this fictitious network to speak to the people and and change point of view. That's the sort of fervor with which uh, Ted met his face to face days long visit with Fidel. That he could, if he expanded CNN, potentially. Change the world for good. Unite the world for good.
1: Lisa, would you please read a portion from the last chapter, page 235,
0: paragraph 3? Yes. He says, I'm trying to get bigger, so I'll have more influence. It's almost like a religious fervor. He still muttered from time to time that he should run for president. My main concern is to be a benefit to the world, to build up a global communication system that helps humanity come together to control population, to stop the arms race, to preserve our environment. We're steaming at 30 knots on the Titanic, trying to break the transatlantic record on an iceberg strewn sea. We're out of control. We've got to
1: get in control. Lisa Napoli is an author, journalist, and longtime public radio colleague. We've been talking about her book, Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter. At L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.
0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious become a member now go online to wabe.org/donate and thanks